0: Take your Bibles and join me please in Genesis chapter 3. We are currently in the midst of a series through the book of Genesis, or at least what I suspect will be the first 11 chapters. We'll see how the Lord leads when we get there. But Genesis chapter 3, let's begin by reading verses 6 through 13. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise... She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. The Lord called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Let's keep reading. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Amen and amen. We considered verse 7 last time. and We saw how after that Adam and Eve sinned by eating from the tree the knowledge of good and evil, that their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. No one had to tell them. Of course, no one was there to tell them except each other. All right, good crowd this morning. Um, No one had to tell them they were naked because their conscience had become awakened to sin. And God places within all of us something that lets us know this isn't right. And it is the knowledge of sin which convinces us that we are sinners and ultimately in need of a Savior. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. So our own consciences testify of the work of the law written in our own hearts, and it reveals to us that we have sinned. The challenge was last week or two weeks ago, what do we do once we have become awakened to sin? How do we deal with it? Adam and Eve decided to sew fig leaves together. cover their nakedness, and in this we saw the first works-based religion. Their desire was right, but they were attempting to deal with their sinfulness by their own efforts, and God will not accept our religious efforts to make us right in His sight. Even religions which do preach Christ to some extent, they'll still tell you there's a gap that you have to make up. And so their doctrine is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross wasn't sufficient to completely save you. That somehow you have to make up this gap. Therefore, you have to be baptized in their church. Or you have to do enough good works to outweigh your bad. Or you have to say certain prayers or maybe even give enough money. Within a works-based salvation religion, how can one ever know if they've done enough to please God? They can't. It's a never-ending process. Just like sowing the fig leaves together was going to be a never-ending process. Because they're going to they're dry up, they're going to rot, they're going to flake off. It, it, listen, it's the same with, with works-based thinking. It's never enough. You're constantly having to, to do this, and yet you never get to the place where you can say, I know that I'm born again. And the Bible's very clear about this over and over. For example, Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. That's pretty clear. Let me read that again because some of you don't look like you're paying attention. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Amen. It's a beautiful day. Let's act like it. So if God won't accept our own righteousness, then... What will God accept? Well, we saw last time it was in verse 21, God only accepts blood. Unto Adam, also unto his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. There was an animal sacrifice performed by God. Blood was shed to clothe Adam and Eve. But that was only a picture of who was to come 4,000 years later. It was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who would lay down His life, a ransom for many. He would shed His blood for the remission of our sins. And He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Christ offers a full pardon. He offers a full salvation. He offers eternal life. It is a free gift by grace and you cannot earn it through your works. Romans eleven six. and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more Grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. And so we concluded last time with the conclusion that many are stuck in verse 7. They're still trying to fix themselves. They're still trying to stand before God in their righteousness, which is nothing but filthy rags. And if we're going to stand before a holy God, the only way to do that is through the merits of Christ having His blood applied. And so we've got to understand that. Jesus paid it all. Is Jesus your plea? All that I have is Jesus. All that I claim is Jesus. All that I want, all that I need, all that I plead is Jesus. Now for today, let's move on to verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. We understand from chapters 1 and 2 that God, Adam, and Eve all had a relationship together. They communed together, fellowshipped together. They walked together. God, when He placed Adam in the garden, fellowshipped with Him. He gave Him the command of permission. You can eat of all the trees you want. Then He gave Him the command of, of prohibition. You can't eat of this one tree. But they were talking, they were fellowshipping, they were with one another. God fellowshiped with them when God performed the first marriage. Isn't it interesting how much we get out of Genesis? God performed the first sacrifice. God performed the first marriage. And He brought Eve to Adam. And they had fellowship together. God fellowship with them when He told them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea or the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God fellowshiped with them when He told them He had given them every herb-bearing seed, every fruit tree for their food. And these are just the things that we have recorded in the Bible. And so it would appear from verse 8 that it was not unusual for the Lord God to come to the garden to fellowship with them. And I want you to understand as we begin to dissect this a little bit, The fellowship that God had with Adam and Eve brought Him pleasure. And it's important we understand this aspect of it. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord hath made all things for Himself. Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. But now in our text, things are different. Sin has entered their lives. Their fellowship with God has been severed. And in their sin, would you get this? They are robbing God of the fellowship He wanted with them. So often we look at it and we say, well, you know, sin breaks fellowship with God. But listen, God wants that fellowship. And when they let sin enter into their lives, they were robbing God of something that He had created them for. And of course... The creature has now robbed themselves of fellowship with the Creator. For those of you in Christ this morning, you know there's no greater joy than when you are walking in truth. When you are right with God, things are going in harmony, and you have peace of mind, because we understand sin is only pleasurable for a season. Then there's payday. Sin is only pleasurable for a season, but the pleasure of walking with God will endure throughout eternity. Once sin has entered the equation, the pleasure of walking with God together with him, it's no longer there when we when we don't confess our sin. If we let sin in and we don't confess sin and get it right, then we don't have that fellowship with God. And by way of application, it's the same in our homes. When a husband and wife are walking in the truth of God's Word, there's sweet fellowship one with another within the home. But once sin against the other enters the picture, that sweetness of marriage dissipates and there's strife and division in the home. We can say the same for our children. When they're walking with God and they are in willing subjection to your laws, as mom and dad, I hope you have laws when they are in subjection to that, there's sweet fellowship. (laughs) But just as soon as they get away from God, and they begin to live selfishly, and they begin to rebel against your law and God's law, that fellowship together with your children, it's hindered. And you know when that's happening. It's not pleasant. And of course the problem is, we're all born sinners. And even after we're in Christ, we still have this flesh that we battle... We fail our spouses. We fail our children. And how do we know this? Because of that tension that starts to build up. We realize something is off. Something is not going right. So we have to work hard at remaining in fellowship with God by walking in His truth in order that we might have godly fellowship with our Lord, with our spouse, with our children, with our friends. You've got to work at it. Because your flesh is weak. Now, how do we understand God wants to fellowship with us? Because He sent His only begotten Son to die for you. I mean, it, it, that is the proof. And, and people will say, "Well, I just don't think God cares." He died for you. Amen. He 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 rose again for you. He. All of this that Jesus did was so that you could have fellowship. With Him, the Bible says that we might be reconciled to Him. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. This is the new covenant. This is the New Testament. I will put My laws into their mind, write them in their hearts, I will be to them a God, and they shall be to Me a people. He wants to be with you. 2 Corinthians 6.16 And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And in verse 8, here comes the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is the same Lord who will say in Isaiah 66.1, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? Out of all the universe that God could be at. Just think about the expanse of the universe and everywhere that God could choose to be. The fact that He has angels that He could fellowship with. God has all of this before Him, and yet there can be no other logical reason that God would visit this tiny garden on this tiny dot in all of the universe except that He desired to fellowship with Adam and Eve. What a thought! How precious is that? God has all that He created, and yet the place that He chose to come and visit was there with them, that He might walk with them, talk with them, have fellowship with them. And I just can't get over the fact that some people view God as this unreachable, out-of-touch God who really doesn't care that much about Him. That God is up there, just He's just hoping that we mess up so He can practice His zapping skills. That God is just, man, I can't wait to pour out my wrath because of those wicked sinners down there. I want you to know, God loves you. Hear what I said? He cares about you. And He cares about you deeply. He knows your name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And, And out of everywhere He could go, He says, I want to come into your heart. This tiny space. And I want to be your God and for you to be my people. He really does want to visit with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He cares about you so much. Let's take note of how God is heard walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is supposed that it was in the evening time which makes sense with how the text flows. It doesn't appear there's been a break in the day. And so after they had sewed fig leaves together, they, after they had sinned and sewed fig leaves together, it's now evening time. That would make sense. It also makes sense meteorolo- meteorologically. Golly, help me with that, sister. Meteorologically. Um, you wouldn't know I was a weatherman for 21 years. Um, I decided not to bore you with my awesome weather uh, knowledge. What's the word? Prowess? Prowess. That sounds like a college guy right there. Um, But I do think there's a lesson to be learned about God's character and how He arrives and the timing in which He arrives. Now, it could be this was the normal time when God came to fellowship with them. You know, at one time in society... Before all these electronics and electricity and modern creature comforts, it used to be in the evening time people would begin to unwind, calm down, maybe go sit on the porch, at least where I grew up, reflect on their day. I say that because here you sit on the porch where I live and you're going to be blown away. But (laughs) Psalm 104.23, Man goeth forth unto his work and to his labor until the evening." And if you don't already, I just want to encourage you, make it a practice to spend time with God in the evening. I mean, for sure you should should pray in the beginning of the day that God would uh, direct you, protect you, those kind of things. Be in fellowship with Him throughout the day, but close your day out with God as well. Just close out the world in fellowship with Him. Psalm 4-4, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Psalm 63, 6, When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Psalm 77, 6, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with my own heart and my spirit may diligent search. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, My soul, now that the cool of the day has come, retire a while and hearken to the voice of thy God. He is always ready to speak with thee when thou art prepared to hear. If there be any slowness to commune, it is not on his part, but altogether on thine own. For he stands at the door and knocks, and if his people will but open, he rejoices to enter. End quote. And for those who may think God is out to get them, notice how God comes walking in the garden. It's not immediately after they sinned, but it's later on. It's in the cool of the day. He is gentle in His approach. He is not storming in, in in the heat of the day, in the heat of His anger. He's not creeping in under the darkness of night when human fears are at their highest. He isn't hasty, but He's deliberate in His approach. He doesn't arrive suddenly, but He gives them notice that He's approaching as they hear His voice. Perhaps it was the still small voice of God, One thing for sure that we can see in this passage is that our God is slow to anger. We should learn the same approach to others when they irritate us. Don't act all righteous this morning, amen. You all got that one you see coming and it's like... But often we're guilty of reacting hastily with anger and we can storm into difficult situations and just ruin the whole thing. And what we need to do is just calm down. It's a valuable lesson to learn because a soft answer will turn away wrath. We see in the second half of verse 8 that even though God is approaching without vengeance, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now, can you picture two people dressed in camouflage? (laughs) Hiding in the trees? To the human eye, it'd be pretty good camouflage, amen, who's going who's to see him? But how silly to think that we can hide from God by just getting behind a tree. <laughs> Psalm 139, 7, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? Proverbs 15, 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Jeremiah 23, 24, can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I feel heaven and earth, saith the Lord? Hebrews 4, 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So when I read this account, I, I think how heartbreaking was this for God? Of course, he knows what's happening. We, we get all that. In his foreknowledge, he knew all this. But here comes God to the garden, and he's looking for fellowship. And yet, when he arrives looking for fellowship, he finds them hiding from him. How sad. God wants to fellowship with you, but how often does God come looking for you, and yet in your sinfulness, you're hiding somewhere. Amen. Amen. Before sin, I can imagine they would have joyfully went to the Lord to have fellowship with Him. Maybe even as a child would run toward a parent and they could hear Him approaching and not be afraid and not have shame. But now there's fear and shame. And the presence of God is no longer a pleasing sight. And who told them to hide? And again, it was their conscience being awakened to sin. And apparently, deep down, they realize that these fig leaves they have sewed together really wouldn't do anything in the sight of God. Or else, why are they hiding? And, and, and now they see God as some kind of enemy against them. As Hebrews 10.27 says, There was a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. That's how they're viewing God now. The one who created them, the one who performed their wedding, the one who blessed them and said, multiply. And now God shows up because sin has entered. They're hiding from Him in fear. Why shouldn't they be afraid? Why shouldn't they attempt to hide when they know they're guilty? Because they've never sinned before. They should be hiding because nobody's ever taught them about forgiveness. They haven't got to verse 15 and verse 21 yet. They don't know about the promised seed to come. They don't know about the coats of skin, the the blood that's going to be shed. They don't understand any of that. It hasn't been taught to them because they haven't sinned. But you see, this is why people have a skewed opinion of God. They believe He's only out to get them when they mess up. It's because they know they are sinners. But they don't understand the forgiveness that God offers they hide from church. I've seen it time and time again. You notice the seats empty for a service and then two. You make a phone call. I oh, will be there. Three services. The next thing you know, you found out there is some sin that's been hidden in their life and now it's been exposed in their home. They don't understand God. They don't understand forgiveness. And now they're running from the very one that can help them. They stay away from church. They stay away from God's word. They're terrified of their opinion of who God is. And we need to take just a moment here and recognize that all that Satan promised them has not come to pass. He's a liar. We know He mixed in truth, but He said it in a way that brought a charge against God. Jonah 2a says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Satan promised they would not die. Now they're hiding out in fear for their lives. He promised they would be elevated as God, but now they've never been at a lower point. He promised them their eyes would be opened in a good sense, but their eyes have only been opened to evil and fear. He promised them knowledge, but the best they could come up with was to sew fig leaves together and to hide from God. Matthew Henry wrote, He promised them that they should be as gods, great and bold and daring. But they are as criminals discovered, trembling, pale and anxious to escape. They would not be subjects and so they are prisoners. End quote. And so it is. They have become prisoners of their own sin. They can't can't deal with this sin on their own. They feel hopeless, they're afraid, they're ashamed, which in one sense is a proper response, but they're hiding themselves from the only one who can help them. They sense God is only out to punish them. But look at what we discover in verse 9. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? There's a lot we can learn from these kind of verses here in Genesis. But this question by God to sinners, it is so great because verse 9 obliterates the common thinking that man is out there looking for God, but somehow he's hard to discover. I've tried seeking him. I've tried calling upon him. He doesn't answer, he's playing hide and seek with me. I just can't seem to locate God. And we get this idea that somehow it's up to us to go and find God and and He's making it difficult for us to do so. And it's the idea that if God exists out there somewhere, He's hiding. And we have to do all that we can to try to find Him and reach Him. But this passage is actually teaching the exact opposite. What we really discover is that sinners are the ones who are hiding from God. And we also discover God is the one who seeks us out. Whoop! Brother, if I was in West Virginia, I'd take a lap right now. Amen. Got some folks here from West Virginia. Went to the West Virginia Jubilee in 2017 and they were taking laps, brother. So take a lap if you want. So anyway... This, this verse here is actually saying that God is seeking out the sinner. That, he's, that, that the sinner's hiding. It's not God that's hiding, it, it is us who hide. It is not us who, who seeks after God, it is God who seeks after us. And the Bible is clear there's none that seeketh after God. Now, if God is all knowing, and He is, then why is He asking this question? Where art thou? Why is this question here? Well, we need to understand that when God asks a question, He's not seeking for information. (laughs) Not for Himself. But He's seeking to provide information to the one that He's asking the question to. When God asks Adam, Where art thou? He wants Adam to see where his sinful decisions have led him. God wants Adam to see the position that Adam is in. He wants Adam to fess up where he's at now that he's decided to turn away from God. God is wanting an amendance of his condition, not his location. God could have come at Adam in any number of ways. But I see, personally, what God is doing here is very kind. With this question to Adam, he's not driving him away, but he's trying to call him out. He's trying to draw him. We are witnessing here in this passage God's mercy and His grace. You understand God could have appeared in His anger and been just in just zapping them. God could have done that. Death was promised against them, and He could have executed that right away. But instead of wrath, God comes to Adam in kindness, and we understand they were beginning to die and all that. But when God speaks here, He's not condemning, but He's seeking Adam out to convince him Of his helpless condition and his need for God. What did Jesus come to earth to do? The Bible says in Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John 3, 17, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So, why does God come to them in kindness in the garden? That's God's character. There there will be a time for God's wrath for those who have rejected Christ. We know that. But in the meantime, God is trying to reach sinners in His love. He wants us to turn to Him and have our sins forgiven. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We see by Adam's response in verse 10 that sin affects the way we think. Look at what it says. I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Sin affects your thinking. What in the world made him think he could hide from God? Why would Adam think God was going to be unkind? God had only been anything but good. What made Adam say he was naked if he was covered in fig leaves? God sees you. He knows where you are at. He knows what you do behind closed doors. He knows what you're doing when nobody else is looking. And there are consequences for sin, which we will see in this chapter. I read them this morning. God is still merciful. He's still gracious. He's still kind, despite how we are. And also, God is kind to Adam because of Adam's response. Adam did fess up in verse 10. He is admitting, yep, I am made a mistake. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, I read verse 1 earlier. Listen to verse 2 here. I'll read verse 1 first. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things hath been, saith the Lord. But listen to what God says next. But to this man will I look even to him that is of a poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at My word. Remember earlier I was saying God could have been anywhere out of all that He created, and yet He's in this garden. But what does He say next after that in Isaiah? He says, the man that I will look out, I will look for, I will seek after, it is the one that is of a poor and a contrite spirit, and that trembleth at My word. Adam here, he's trembling at the Word of God. Thou shalt surely die. He's hiding. He's acknowledging that he is of a poor and contrite spirit. He recognizes his helpless condition. I just want to say that's all you have to do. If you'll just swallow your pride and stop thinking, boy, if I go forward to get saved, everybody's going to think that I've been living a lie. No, they're going to think you're a sinner in need of a Savior and rejoice. But people don't like to swallow their pride and admit who they are. But you have to admit who you are. You're a sinner. Admit where you are. You're apart from God. You're hiding. Admit your condition, though you may try to hide it from others. You are naked and in your shame in the eyes of God. And then admit that you fear God in His Word. So where are you this morning? God couldn't save somebody like me. Why not? Why not? You don't know what I've done. No, but He does. And still the one earthly reason was you. So where are you this morning? Don't miss that it is God who manifested Himself to them. Don't miss that it was God who wanted to restore fellowship with them. Don't miss that that it wasn't God who was hiding, it was them. God is interested this morning in reestablishing a relationship with them, or with you, just as He was with them. Even though they were the ones who turned away. God wants to have a relationship with you. He's seeking you out. I just want to tell you, don't shy away and hide in the shadows any longer, but answer God's call. He wants to draw you out from hiding. He wants to draw you out and give you coats of skin, so to speak. He wants to clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. But you have to answer that call and then be saved from your sins. So where are you at today? Let's pray.